This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. On the show, Destination Ontario, what you need to know before you go. The good work of the Longos Charitable Foundation and back to the office safely. But we begin with the ongoing pandemic. According to many health authorities, we are either just entering a fourth wave or we're already in it. Canada's top doc, Teresa Tam, warned of this weeks ago, saying that if reopening plans outpace immunization, boom, a fourth wave. Infection control epidemiologist Colin Furness on July 16th, just as Ontario moved to step three, said, quote, today is the first day of stage three, but it's also in some ways the first day of the fourth wave. Colin Furness joins us now on the feed. Well, thank you, Colin, for joining us on the show. Good to have you with us. My pleasure. Thank you. So that's quite a quote uh, and seems to, uh, in some ways, uh, be coming true. You say that we are perhaps uh, in a fourth wave. What do you mean by that? Well, if we think about what waves look like, exponential growth is very hard for us to kind of internalize because we tend to think in straight lines. But an exponential growth curve looks really flat for a long time. It looks like nothing's going on, and then it ticks up really, really sharply. And so we tend to wait for that uptick, that sharp uptick to say, oh, we're in a wave. But actually, that sharp uptick always comes after this long, slow incline. And that's what started on July 16th when we said it's now okay for people to share air indoors without masks and with unknown vaccination status. That right there said to me, we're going to start cases uh, spreading and it will start slow and build from there. And last week we saw some of the numbers, the case numbers in Ontario kind of going the wrong way. Could this be the start of something even bigger than that where we see the numbers increasing and increasing to a point where hospitalization is up and unmanageable? It feels to me like we're still on that long, slow, flat period that looks like no growth. And if we pay so much attention to the numbers on a day-by-day basis, you know, that, that has to do with testing. It has to do with, with sort of random fluctuations. So you really kind of want to look at a week or two weeks of data. I still think we're in that long, flat uh, region. And when it starts to pick up very sharply, we'll know. And I, I suspect that that's going to be September. So British Columbia last week, uh, the first province to declare that it is in a fourth wave. So how can they say that? What is it that they are using to determine that kind of statement? Well, two things. One is a bump in cases they weren't expecting, but the other thing in British Columbia's case is all of these new cases, and I think they're on Vancouver Island, they're all Delta variant. And that's significant because British Columbia had not seen Delta, uh, Delta variant. They, they were dealing with other variants. They, they kind of had their own ecology of COVID. So for Delta to have made landfall there is significant. And to not just be one case that's travel associated, but multiple cases where either they've discovered that it's local transmission or they have no idea what the transmission is. And, and either of those, I think, would be sufficient to say, okay, it's started here. So I have a a question for you, and this is as a layperson, that's who I am, what I am. Is a fourth wave just among the unvaccinated or partially vaccinated, or is a fourth wave among all of us? In in a way, and my answer is going to seem kind of evasive, but I don't mean it to be. 
it's primarily going to be among the unvaccinated. But there's two things to consider. One is that people who are older, um, the age 50 tends to be the, the dividing line, and a lot of us like me are. If you're older than 50 and if you've got risk factors, comorbidities, so, for example, a compromised immune system or, you know, lung disease, heart disease, these make you more susceptible. And, you know, the Delta variant is very good at spreading. So you can be double vaccinated. And if you're exposed and you've got those kinds of risk factors, you may end up developing COVID. And that's something to consider. So it's not a question of those who are double vaccinated are somehow completely immune. The word immunity is really something we shouldn't be using. We should really be saying, that you're disease resistant and anyone who's double vaccinated can still get COVID if you're young and healthy and you're double vaccinated and you're exposed well here's the thing COVID doesn't know that you're vaccinated so it goes into your nose it goes into your throat it starts to reproduce and your your body will react very quickly and clear it very quickly and you won't know that you're sick in fact you won't experience illness however during that time you might be shedding a bit and you might then pass it on to someone. So when we say that it's going to be a wave experienced by unvaccinated people, the hospital beds will be taken up primarily by unvaccinated people. But some people who, again, are older and have comorbidities will also be in there too. And the unhealthy folks who are vaccinated may help amplify that. They may participate in the transmission even even though they don't get sick either. So a wave is kind of everybody's problem in that sense. The younger population, those under the age of 12, still not eligible for vaccinations, is that a problem? It's a big problem. I think, you know, when we look at what Alberta decided to do, which was to say we're, we're just we're packing up our marbles and going home. COVID is, is going to hit people who are unvaccinated and you had your chance to get vaccinated. That's a very callous approach when you consider that, that our kids are, by definition, a vulnerable population because they're kids and because they're not vaccinated yet. So I, I really worry that the kids have fallen into this COVID blind spot for a year and a half. You know, a year ago and a year and a half ago, we were saying, oh, kids don't get COVID. They don't matter. It doesn't matter. Well, it always did. You know, we didn't test kids. We didn't assume or conclude or realize that they were experiencing, in many cases, asymptomatic COVID uh, that would then spread among their families. Or if they got COVID, it looked really mild, and we didn't actually notice that some kids develop long-haul COVID, which is associated with autoimmune disease and brain damage. I mean, these are things that we should not subject our kids to. And to relax our restrictions and assume that everything will be fine because our vaccination rates are high is, again, to, to repeat this mistake of just ignoring kids and saying they don't matter. They do. They do. They matter a lot. And, and so that's concerning to me. When will we see, then, that age group receive vaccinations? Do you know? Well, we're expecting data from the big trial that's being held right now. So it's a trial that's being um, conducted in simultaneously in the U.K., Poland, Spain, and the United States. And those are areas that have been experiencing a lot of COVID this summer. And that's, that's for vaccination trials, that's actually good news. You need community spread in order to see if the vaccine works. So we've got kids enrolled in trials in those four countries. We're expecting data in September and I think definitive data by October. So then it goes to Health Canada. And, you know, Health Canada could really move with alacrity. I'm hoping they do. Uh, It's not just safety. It's not just efficacy. It's also the dose. So it's a little bit more complicated. And I know that the Americans have asked that the trials be extended and expanded in order to look for rare side effects. And I think for kids, I think that's a prudent thing to want to do. That's a long answer to your question. With any luck, we could be 
inoculating our kids in, say, November or December. It's very much up to Health Canada, and it's very much up to the, the design of the trials and the data that's produced. The, the more compelling the data, the faster the approval. I'm really crossing my fingers for, like, November, December, and to do it in schools and to do it fast. And speaking of which, that is several months after the, the reopening of schools. And in this province, uh, parents have the choice to keep their kids at home and do it online or send them back into the classroom. They've got to make their decision later this month. But what does that mean in terms of, of trying to catch up, if you will, so the kids go back into the school system unvaccinated, the young ones, the very young ones, but then they might be vaccinated, you hope, by November. Uh, is that a really dangerous couple of months? It's potentially a dangerous couple of months, and I think one of the biggest risk factors uh, for whether a particular child is at risk going back to school is actually the postal code in which they live. Uh, and, and that's a way of saying that COVID is not an equal opportunity virus. It absolutely preys upon uh, weaker, lower um, socioeconomic status neighborhoods. They're often racialized as well. And really what we have seen from the United from data from the United States is what happens to kids in schools is a function of how much community prevalence there is. So in a wealthy postal code in, let's say, Toronto, and we've all seen those maps, those heat maps of vaccination and COVID. So in a wealthy district, there's high vaccination rates, there's low COVID rates. Schools will be relatively safe. There will still be little outbreaks here and there, but it will be relatively safe. There are neighborhoods in Toronto that are far poorer, where COVID rates have been higher, where vaccination rates are lower, and those schools are going to be less safe. And, and so one thing I, I found particularly upsetting was when our chief medical officer of health a few days ago said, we need to normalize COVID in schools. That was very offensive to me because what he's saying, whether he realizes it or not, is if you're in a wealthy postal code, this isn't going to be a problem. But if you are not, we're not going to do much to help you. And I, I think that's anathema to public health. I, I, I really don't understand why he would say that. And I, I'm, I'm very, very, very concerned about it. I want to do a quick Q&A with you, if you would uh, go with me on this one, Colin. So first, several provinces uh, are, are at this point lifting most or all restrictions and some ahead of vaccination targets. We then look at New York City and what they're doing. Can you give us a comparison and give us your opinion? Well, I think New York City has done something that we haven't, and that is they've looked at what's gone on in the rest of the United States. Everywhere else where they have lifted restrictions, particularly mask restrictions, they've seen a very ugly surge in, in COVID cases. Canada seems to ignore that, or, or rather our public health authorities from, from coast to coast seem to be ignoring that and, and deciding that it's okay, um, and that, that it's okay to, to release restrictions, especially masks. New York City has looked at the same data and said, wait a minute, this is not, this is not a good idea. So I think New York, which did get clobbered really hard in the first wave, I mean really hard if you remember back to last spring um, or spring of 2020, and I, I think they, they learned some very painful lessons from that. So I applaud what they're doing. I think it makes sense. It's, uh, New, York, New York City in particular has a lot of risk factors, a lot of very, very dense living. I lived there for a few years myself, and I'm very sensitized to what it means to be cheap and jowl, living like that and, and in, a, in a big city that is normally a great place to be. But when you're thinking about communicable disease, it, it can be really terrifying. So Toronto, for example, is a, is a lot more like New York City than it is like the rest of the rural United States. And you know, on that basis, I'm hoping that cities and individual public health units smarten up and introduce mass mandates, even if the provinces in which they reside don't. 
Mandatory vaccinations. Uh, Prime Minister Trudeau last week floating the balloon uh, that some sectors of the workplace should be it should it should be mandatory. Even health care organizations at the provincial level here in Ontario demanding that health care workers be fully vaccinated. What are your thoughts on that? So my thoughts are a little bit complicated on that. There's a better way than mandatory vaccination. And this is based on some research I did in the United States measuring attitudes of healthcare workers toward vaccination. It turns out that when you try and compel people, you, you generate a lot of anger, you generate a lot of resentment, you generate a lot of bile, a lot of negative discourse. And so this, the research I did was around flu vaccinations in the, in the U.S. and in a cancer hospital where everyone's immune compromised. And, you know, the, 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 what the unions were saying, well, you can't make this, you can't force this, it's not safe, it's not effective. All this, all this hate, all this rage. And so the hospital turned around and said, you know what, we'll, we'll give everyone a choice. We'll give, no, no one's going to be forced. What we're going to do is you have a choice of either getting vaccinated, and we'll put a sticker on your ID card that says so, or, and I realize this is going to sound quaint now, but or you have to wear a mask all day long when you're on shift and, and during flu season. And, you know, the vaccination rates went from like 8% to about 98%. I mean, it was, it was transformative because no one wanted to wear a mask all day long. So I did an attitude survey at this hospital, and I was wondering whether the attitudes would be, I'm really angry, I feel forced into this, like that's, that's a false choice, or is cognitive dissonance going to kick in, and once they've gotten a the shot, are they going to be quite positive? And that's what we found. All the negative discourse was gone, and people, when they were asked, why did you get the shot, they didn't say, so I don't, can't wear a mask, or don't have to wear a mask. They said, it's professional responsibility, I'm taking care of myself and my family and my patients. And that said a lot to me about the effect of giving people agency. So if it were up to me in Ontario, I would not force anyone to be vaccinated. But what I would say to every healthcare worker is, you are trained to work with patients. If you want to work with patients, you need to be vaccinated. And if you don't want to be vaccinated, we'll put you in the kitchen, we can put you in the soil utility room, we can put you in administration, we can put you somewhere else with a mask, and you're not going to come anywhere near patients. You get to decide. It is up to you. And I would say the same thing about long-term care, and I would say the same thing about a number of different kinds of places. Um, the schools would be another good example. Teachers who don't want to be vaccinated can teach virtually. Let's give them the choice. And it may not sound like much of a choice, but honestly, it is a lot better in terms of winning hearts and minds. I don't think anyone in a hospital or a long-term care home wants to be cared for by someone who's feeling betrayed and angry. You want to be cared for by someone who's committed. And the difference between the two is offering that agency. So my plan essentially means that everyone in a hospital, everyone in a long-term care home, every student in school gets exposed only to people who are vaccinated. And no one's being forced to be vaccinated. So to me, it's actually a win-win. Colin, herd immunity, is it achievable in Canada? And could it prevent an impactful fourth wave? Uh, you know, the short answer is, is almost definitely not. I, I don't think we can get there. And the reason for that is that herd immunity is based on two things. It's based on how contagious the disease is and how effective the vaccine is. And there's a simple formula you can, you can calculate what the herd immunity is required. The problem is the epidemiology of COVID keeps changing. So as, as it mutates and gets more effective at doing what it does, the vaccines become a little less effective and the contagiousness goes up. So a year ago, we thought 70, maybe 75% would get us to herd immunity. It's probably more like 90 now, and we're not even sure because it's, we're still trying to measure delta. It's, it's actually really hard to measure contagiousness. And so if it's going to be something like 90%, 
That's not just the eligible population, that's everybody. So we have zero chance of doing that before we can inoculate kids. And even when we can inoculate kids, we would have to pick up our game a lot more and, uh, and get participation a lot higher. We're proud of our vaccination rates, but we're, the problem there is that we're, we're using the term eligible population. So we're goosing the numbers. We're making it seem better than it actually is. And we're also not looking at differences by age group and differences by sex. Young men in their 20s, well, less than 50% are vaccinated in Ontario. That's low whereas 80 or 90% are vaccinated in their 70s and 80s. That's high. So when we average it all together, it makes it look like we're doing better than we are. So um, between not vaccinating kids yet and the proportion of people who remain unvaccinated, particularly in specific demographics, I don't think we're going to get there. And that's really too bad. And as we look at the layers of vaccination rates, if you will, and and unvaccinated, uh, some who are partially vaccinated, fully vaccinated, the question about a booster shot comes into play. And you think about Pfizer banging the drum again and trying to get approval for a booster shot, for a third shot. Would that help in any way at any point in this pandemic? You know, the preliminary data says, yes, it would. We don't have a lot of data yet. Um, it's also been pointed out by the World Health Organization that when you start to give wealthy countries third shots, you're doing it at the expense of giving the global south first and second shots. So you, you might be creating more protection locally, but, but maybe undermining the global effort. That's, that's something to consider. We, we can think about a third booster shot in two ways. One is simply a third shot of the same thing for people who are older and have multiple risk factors. Um, that, that's where we have some data that says it would be a good idea. Uh, so that's something to consider. But the other thing I think that Pfizer is looking at is a reformulated vaccine that would be more effective specifically against escape mutations. So more, more effective against Delta and some of the other variants, Gamma as well, is, is, is one that would be, that would be uh, one of concern. So Pfizer, I think, you know, they're a corporation. They're, they're in it. They're in it to save people, but they're also in it to make money. They are obviously going to be very keen on having a, a booster shot. I think when we think about the global situation, when we think about who would most benefit from it locally and whether we need or whether it makes sense to have a new vaccine that, um, that is more effective against the variants, these are all things to consider. By and large, I expect we will have at least a limited booster shot and, and possibly by next year it may be more broadly mandated. So I think it's something we will see, but it's a little too early to say that we definitely should and, and on what timeline. In-depth information and uh, some pretty interesting opinions. Appreciate all of that. Infection control epidemiologist Colin Furness, thank you for joining us on the feed. My pleasure. Thank you. Going back into the office safely. Tina Cortez now with the how-to's. Restrictions are easing and organizations have begun the return to the workplace. But what should leaders and people managers consider and plan for during this adjustment period and beyond? With tips to manage back to work in the office is Leon Gorin, president and CEO of PEO Leadership. Thank you for joining the show, Leon. Well, thank you for having me. So what does every leader need to know when creating a return to work plan? Well, I, I think the key word there is plan. And, um, you know, with everything happening so quickly, people starting to come back to work through the summer, I think now through the fall it will continue. 
communication is probably the most important skill set of most leaders today and being able to have that conversation with their employees, set the expectations, and then actually start to create a plan, um, any type of plan that allows the employees to understand what's expected of them, how they're going to return, and for them to also feel safe in that environment that they're returning to. Do you think that the company should have a position on employees receiving the COVID-19 vaccine? <laughs> so that's, a, that's a, a very difficult question today. And so, you know, in my world, what I'm very fortunate to be able to do is to sit in various different peer groups and listen to what's on the top of mind of leaders today. And so that is one of the biggest challenges in terms of trying to figure out what we should be doing now. And I think what most of our leaders are doing is looking south of the border to get an understanding of what our American counterparts are doing, looking to our Canadian government, provincial governments to see what type of policies they're putting in place. But I mean, it is something that is burdensome on our leaders today in trying to figure that out. And it's a concern not for only those that are vaccinated, but also those that are non-vaccinated in the workplace and trying to protect both of those individuals. Um, at the end of the day, my own personal belief is I think you're going to need a policy in place. I think you're going to have to address the fact that you maybe have to become a, a, a vaccinated office if you're going to have people coming or there'll be some type of office design that allows non-vaccinated people to be somewhat separated to, to ensure that we're not uh, passing on COVID-19. Or maybe we're working with a hybrid for the next year or two until we pass through this whole pandemic uh, where people are able to work from home. Uh, they can still adhere to the, their beliefs around not being non-vaccinated. Um, and we're protecting both them and we're protecting our vaccinated workers in the office. So let's talk about that new design. Let's talk about that hybrid model because so much has changed and some has stayed the same. So how do we navigate the hybrid so I think every company is going to be a little different in terms of how you plan for a hybrid model. And I think the, the leaders and the management teams are going to have to sort of take a look about into their own companies and try and figure out what makes them special here and unique and differentiates them in, in, um, as a company today. And when you do that, what you should be able to do is to figure out, okay, can I have certain departments, for example, working in a hybrid mode? For example, if I run a creative department, in my organization, and it's truly a key element that differentiates me from my competition. Can I work in an environment where we are working in hybrid, or do I need people collaborating, working in the same office environment? If I have a finance department, how important is it for the finance department to be present every day? So ultimately, at the end of the day, I think as I watch a lot of these organizations sort of walk through this, what they're doing is essentially they're being innovative in this because there's no right answer, wrong answer. And, and they're looking at their various departments and saying, okay, how important is collaboration? Can collaboration be done on Zoom? Um, even interdepartmental within an organization, how important is it for people to be bumping into each other, collaborating among the different functions within the organization? And they're making calls. There. And some of the calls that I've seen have been, you know what, we will have two or three days in the office where everybody must be in the office to ensure that people are bumping into each other, we've got a high collaboration environment. Then we're having a couple of days 
during the week where people are actually able to work remotely. And so I'm going to emphasize that the one thing that has come to my attention, I think, is a worry is recruiting new people. And I think when people start to reflect, if you've been in the workplace environment for a while, is when you first started that job, how important was it for you to be actually physically in that job versus working remotely? And I think that, that's a big question leaders have to address, organizations need to address, because I think culture is built from the bottom up, essentially. Well, it starts from the top, but it's ultimately the people within the organization. So you really need to think about those first few months that I bring on a new employee, can I actually work remotely or do they need to be in the office? Do I need to actually pull them along? Do I need to mentor them? Do I need to take them to lunches? Do I need to educate them about the entire uh, organization, why they do what they do? How does that fit into what we produce? How does that impact uh, another person? Anyway, I've gone on a little bit long on that, but I hope I, I sort of bring some points out there for that will be useful. You did for sure. Now, you know, if you do have staff that have been working remotely for long periods of time and perhaps will continue to do so, how does a leader motivate that team and ensure that everyone is clear on the vision and mission of the company? So I I come back to the very first point I made, and that's all around communication, right, and transparency and having those conversations with your people. So most leaders are not great at this. We think about stuff a lot. We internalize things. We probably don't communicate enough. You have a situation now where we've got remote employees and we've got internal employees. We're running hybrid meetings. Um, What was difficult in the past is now even more difficult. So I think about a couple of things. One is if you're running a meeting that is a hybrid or even a Zoom meeting, is that you set the stage and you, you allow conversations to happen at the beginning of the meeting to get people warmed up. You take the time to continue to express the vision of that organization, the purpose of the organization, so you're educating people on an ongoing basis about why they do what they do, how it actually fits into the puzzle. And and it's difficult because you're going to be talking to remote individuals that you've been doing that in the past. You're talking to people that maybe sit around the table with you at the time, and you've got to make sure you're not forgetting anybody around the table. And then the third piece I would think about around remote is, uh, or even a hybrid is, is to take a deep breath from time to time and really try and get a sense of how people are feeling. And that's a little different for a leader. I know this is new. We've had to develop those skill sets over the last 18 months. I think you're going to need to continue to develop those skill sets. But there has been a lot of challenges around mental illness, all these things where people have been very isolated. Now, this may continue, right? Working remotely, mm-hmm. if you're not getting vaccinated, you've got to work remotely. It is, for some people, it's a real struggle. I think you need to be attentive to that. You need to put time aside uh, to allow that person to talk through some of the challenge, to try and be supportive where you can be, and to allow the team to actually support each other. So a, a few tips in terms of trying to bring it all together. It's not easy, and I think it's a very much a discovery mode for a lot of people and a lot of leaders over the next several months. Absolutely, and I know that every situation is different, and you touched on this a bit, but how does a company manage then an employee's mental health and anxiety, their perhaps family situations? How do you manage all of that and run the business as well? Well, I'll even add one more to that, which I hear about is how do they manage themselves Mm -hmm. as the leader? 
So we've never had to deal with this before, right? You go to work every day, we're taught to inspire, engage our people, we're taught to think about the vision, and now we're also having to think about everybody's well-being. And it's not, and the well-being of a lot of people is changing rapidly. Like 18 months of this may continue on for more months, isolation, working in small environments. It's a lot on the leader. So I actually tell leaders, start with yourself right now. Think about yourself. Are you in a good state? And be in a good state because you're actually carrying a lot of the burden. And then the second thing is when you're in a good state, then you're actually an ability, you have the capability to actually help others. So in helping others, active listening is probably the most important skill today. It's just being able, we're not psychologists. Most of our leaders are not psychologists, but being able to sit there to listen and then try and support. Maybe it's through different programs where you're able to, through the benefit programs, that you're able to get them the assistance they need or be able, be able to connect with them. We used to tell our leaders, or different groups within our organization. Well, we can't come indoors, but why not go for a walk outdoors together? Have your meeting outdoors. Just shift it around. So, it's again, every situation is different, but the one important skill is here is, is really trying to actively listen and be supportive when you can. And I'm not saying drop the business. You have a business and organization to grow. But, unfortunately, you've also got to be able to do a little bit more these days, ensuring that the, that organization is actually sustainable in the future. Hmm. Leon, thank you for sharing these strategies to hit the ground running. If our listeners want more information, where can they connect with PEO leadership? So one of the best ways is to check us out on our PEO-leadership.com. Uh, on there, you'll be able to see, we run two eight-week programs, trial programs that if you're an executive, if you're a CEO, or your senior leadership, rising star, check it out. It's a great way to get a sense of what it's like to have a support network around you, what it's like to have your own advisory board around you, and also how to have what it's like to have an advisor along the journey. So I urge you to check it out. You can check me out on our podcast called The Way Forward as well, and I hope to hear from you shortly. After the break, Rediscovering Ontario. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Hit the road, take a hike, and go jump in a lake. And I say all of this with the greatest respect. Ontario is now finally yours to rediscover. And there are so many incredible things to see and do throughout this mighty province. Our tour guide today, Destination Ontario's Kevin Forgette, who has spent the past seven years tracking down exciting and exhilarating escapes, both mainstream and off the grid. Kevin, I have two words for you. Fun. Wow. Welcome to the feed, my friend. So good to have you with us. I am overly excited, and it's hard because it's on the radio, so you can't see how excited I am, but I have been waiting for the chance to chat with you for you have no idea how long. (laughs) I do know, because you and I have been in touch for the past 18 months, hoping that this day would come, and it has. So we are post-pandemic 
in a sense, I mean, we're coming out of it. The fog is lifting. The clouds are moving. What do we need to know before we go? Well, it's really important to kind of plan out what you're going to do. It's really hard right now because things are slowly opening up and, and places are open, but maybe they're not open as much as they normally would be, you know, with protocols in place. So it's hard to sort of say, hop in the car and do something this afternoon. It's really important to kind of plan out your vacation, plan out what you're going to do, and then do your research to know what's open, what's closed, what safety protocols might be in place, but also most importantly, what's going to happen when you get there to make sure that you feel safe and that things are running smoothly. And another idea might be to have a family discussion about what everybody wants to do, and hopefully there are some similarities. Let's talk about outdoor activities. It is the month of August. The weather is really great if you like it hot, and some like it hot. What are some of the really cool activities that people can enjoy outdoors? Yeah, there are so many, and it's great because the things that we can talk about are not only just open for the month of August, but a lot of them are still going to be open September, October, looking to even a little bit of the fall. So even when you're listening to us chatting today, it's not something that you have to do before the summer is over. You can plan for something in the fall. So let's talk about something totally out of the box. And I know that you're an adventure seeker, (laughs) and I am too, but even looking at something like parasailing. Yes. It's... (laughs) You know, people think, ah, it's a little intimidating because it's not really what you want to do, but I can tell you doing it myself, it's the most amazing experience because you're on the back of this great boat. You can do it either in the Gravenhurst area or Halliburton. They winch you up very slowly off the back of the boat, and you're attached to a really big sail, and then they will eventually take you, get this six. Hundred feet in the air, overlooking the water. Yeah, it's it's an exhilarating experience, but it takes no energy. You don't have to do anything. The people do it on the boat, do all the work, and then once you get all your views, they'll slowly winch you back down, and then you literally land on the back of the boat without even getting yourself wet. So that's one outdoor experience. Another is zip lining, and it's something that I've seen and I've read about. I've never tried. Okay, so then, Anne, when we have the opportunity to do a road trip together, and hopefully that's going to take place over the next couple of months, I'm going to make sure that you and I do a zip line together because that's now going to be on my list because zip lining, again, is so cool, and there's so many places across the province. You don't realize, you know, from the one that's the zip line to the falls in Niagara Falls to the ones in the Blue Mountains to ones that, you know, just north of Barrie, there's, you know, there's so many zip lines that I, we could talk about 35 minutes worth of zip lines, but I'm just going to say, doing zip line experience is one of the cool places of a place just outside of Santa's Village. It's the Muskoka zip lines and aerial parks, and again, you can choose how high you want to go, how long they are, and they get you hooked up, and then you just go across the zip line. So it doesn't take a lot of energy, but still gives you that exhilarating experience. Downhill mountain biking, as opposed to going uphill, I'm, I'm all for that. <laughs> <laughs> well, the nice part is, is at Horseshoe Resort, they have a really cool downhill mountain biking experience, and you don't even have to push your bike up the hill because you use the chairlift. So the chairlift, instead of being used in the wintertime for, obviously, skiers, they have the devices in place to put your bikes on it. They'll take you to the top of the hill, and then it's choose-your-own-adventure. Kids can do it. Adults can do it. It can be more of a slower pace. It can be an extreme pace where there's more jumps and going over bridges. But, again, it's, it's uh, a great experience for all ages, 
They have the bikes on site to rent if you don't happen to have your own bike. So if you want to try this and you think, ah, I can't do it, I don't have the equipment, everything is on site at Horseshoe Resort for you to try it. Thrill seekers love whitewater rafting. Tell me more about that. Oh, whitewater rafting. If, I, if you ask me what one of my coolest experiences was, this is it. Whitewater rafting. Um, a lot of people don't know that the Ottawa River has some of the best whitewater rafting out there. There's a couple of outfitters. Um, uh, wilderness tours, owl rafting. These are just a couple of them, and they have the experience where you can go from gentle rapids all the way up to the extreme rapids, different size boats. You can do it with family. You can do it with friends. And if you don't want to do the day trip, they have one-day, two-day, and even three-day packages where you'll go out different days. They've got the camping on site, cabins on site to stay overnight. Um, and it is an experience that the whole family can enjoy. Are there any experiences that one can do for free? And I've, the first thing that comes to mind is hiking the Bruce Trail. Yeah, and that is it. There are a lot of great free trails. There's a lot of great hiking trails. Um, right now, Ontario Parks during the week has free day use admission. So when you look at a lot of the Ontario Parks, they're busy for camping. And I'm not really, you know, if you don't really have a reservation for camping for the summer, chances are you're not going to get in there. But a lot of the day use uh, opportunities are still there. Um, and all you have to do is book in advance, we, again, know before you go, go onto the Ontario Parks website and then book your day use sort of pass for the day for free, Monday to Friday, and there are great hiking trails in those. But, yeah, the Bruce Trail, also along the Niagara Parks down in Niagara Falls, that whole trail system along the rapids and along the gorge is also for free, so there is a lot of free options out there. What about indoor activities? Not everybody is prepared for that. They're not sure that they want to go inside to have their fun, but there are some great activities around Ontario that are set indoors. There are, and it's important to note that they are open because a lot of people right now, knowing of all the COVID protocols, think it's just the outdoor stuff that's open. There are indoor opportunities. So there's a brand-new attraction that's just opened up in Niagara Parks, the Niagara Parks Power Station. So there's over 100-year-old power station that used to be, you know, in use for generating power for the Niagara area. They've restored it all and opened it up to now see the huge turbines, and you really experience one of the first major power plants on the Canadian side of the rapids. That's an indoor event. Also, right at Young, Dun- Young and Dundas Square in Toronto, uh, Little Canada has opened up, and it's an indoor um, experience where you walk around, and it's a miniature version of all the great attractions of Canada. So that's brand new, too. So I wanted to mention those because these are brand new attractions that have been waiting for months and months to be able to open themselves up to the public, and those are the indoor experiences. We both know that travel and tourism generates millions, maybe billions of dollars for the Ontario economy. How important is it that we are now at this point where you and I are talking and you in particular are talking about all that is open and all that there is to discover in Ontario again. It is so important. You know, you think of everybody knows somebody who works not only at a, a restaurant or a resort or attraction, so no matter what age, no matter what, it's so important. And now that we're open, it's now supporting those resorts and those businesses that have been waiting for the opportunity to welcome guests back. So, you know, the resorts that are open are now open and have the staff there, so they need to make sure that they have the people there to come visit. So it is so important and it's so exciting that we're now able to sort of say, rediscover Ontario. Rediscover your province again. And it may be something brand new, but it may just be going out and taking a day trip and going to a local brewery or going to just a local attraction for the day if you feel comfortable to do so. So how do you book and how do you save money? 
<laughs> so booking in advance is important, and right now we all want to look at ways that we can we can save money, save a couple of bucks, or really a great incentive. And and the nice part is because different areas across the province want to welcome visitors back, they have some great incentives in place. So even the area, the York Durham headwaters. So we're all, you know, York region proud. You know, I live in York region myself. Um, they have great offers where it's $100 off when you book two-night stays at, you know, different areas, not only around Vaughan and Markham, but also like places like Hockley Valley or the Briars Resort in Jackson's Point. So if you want that staycation, you know, even just booking the family a vacation in even just a local hotel in Markham that they can go and enjoy the pool is enough to be able to do something with the family. So 100 bucks off or, you know, even if you want to head out to, to Ottawa, Ottawa Tourism has a great incentive where, like, you book two nights and you get $200 worth of experiences and attractions and tours and restaurant certificates. So a lot of great tourism operators across the province are encouraging people to come to their area and doing stuff. And I'll mention one more. Attractions Ontario is, a, is an organization that represents you know, hundreds of attractions, everything from, you know, the African Lion Safaris to different museums. And if you are a member of the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, so a lot of people are part of CARP, you have the opportunity to have discounts, two-for-one passes. Dozens of attractions are offering 20% off, 15% off. So if you're looking for something to do, definitely the incentives are out there. Destination Ontario's Kevin Forgette. What is your next destination? My next destination is we're actually going to head up and do some of the stuff that I just talked about. I have a week booked off at near the end of August, so I'm taking my beautiful wife, Sarah, my two kids, Kyle and Dylan, and we're going to go. We're going to do the mountain biking. We're going to do the zip lining because we also haven't had the opportunity to do it. So that's it, and then we're going to do one day down in Niagara Falls because they love, they love the attraction. So that's my next plan. And then, um, like I mentioned earlier, planning now ahead to fall. Fall is a beautiful place to travel in Ontario. And we will connect at that point. Very quickly, how can people find out more about Destination Ontario? We have just launched a brand new website, DestinationOntario.com. If you go there, it has a list of kind of everything you can see and do in Ontario. And if you go to that website, DestinationOntario.com slash um, restart, now it's going to give you everything you need for itineraries. We've got lists there of four-day, one-day, different ideas to help you plan your vacation for sure. Just as I said in the introduction, and maybe you'll join me in this, two words, Kevin. Fun. Wow. Okay, ready? Fun. Wow. Okay, yeah. let's do it together. Fun. Wow. Fun. Wow. <laughs> and You're Ken, great. this interview has been more than fun. Wow. It has been absolutely amazing, and I cannot wait to chat with you again. And I, you. Thank you, Kevin Forget, Destination Ontario, you are marvelous. Have a wonderful rest of August. Thank you so much. <laughs> when we come back, support for community health care. Follow us on Twitter at 1059 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer, always a leader in philanthropy. The Longo family is committed to supporting healthcare workers. Jim Lang now with that story. One of the great companies and great families and great organizations in the region, the GTA, is Longo's. We know them well. I mean, a lot of people get their groceries there at Longo's. They also have the Longo's Family Charitable Foundation. And their Family Charitable Foundation is committed $150,000 
to hospitals in the GTA hardest hit by COVID-19 to talk more about it. Thrilled to be speaking with their chair and spokesperson of Longo's and everything they do with their family charitable foundation, Roseanne Longo. Roseanne, how are you? I'm great, Jim. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure. Like any business, I know the Longos near us, because we're a new market, the one at Young and Green Lane, uh, went to great lengths to make sure it was a safe environment for everybody else. So obviously, the Longos family and the Longos company understood the impact of COVID. But at what point did you decide we wanted to do something more for these hospitals and everything they've done for us? Well, you know what? Actually, we, we stepped up early in March of 2020 um, when when things were closing down and, and we could tell that this uh, pandemic was going to be something greater than we all uh, anticipated. And right away we started calling our hospitals to say, how can we help? Um, that was back in March 2020 and we did donate uh, over $130,000 to our local community hospitals. But then uh, we're a year and a half in, um, you know, the, the healthcare workers, it just hasn't stopped. It hasn't stopped for any of us, but they're, they're really experiencing burnout and have not had a chance to have a rest. And we just wanted to do something to ensure that their, their, um, their mental wellness continues. I mean, they're experiencing the burnout. They're not able to uh, take any vacations or any kind of respite because, uh, because they're also short-staffed as well as the pandemic continuing to go on strong. And we just wanted to help them with some programs and, and really to, to let them know that we, we still see them, we still care, and, uh, and, and we're behind them. Well, I, I know uh, we've dealt with CEO Altaf Station Walla from McKinsey Health and everyone else with the ho- some of the hospitals in the region. And you're, you just nailed it, Roseanne. I'm, I mean, we think about, oh, we've had a hard day at work. And then we think about the nurses and doctors and hospital staff. And you're like, how do they get through it every day? Yeah, exactly right. Um, you know, nobody anticipated that this would go on for as long as it has. We're over 15 months now. And, you know, it, whatever industry you're in, but the healthcare workers, you're running on adrenaline at the beginning. You're saving lives. You're doing great things. Um, that can only go on for so long. They're still doing great things, but that adrenaline runs low. And, um, you know, we were all on our doorsteps and clapping for them on Saturday nights or Friday nights, whenever, and, and doing all that. Um, and, you know, a little of that has gone by the wayside and, and forgotten as we've kind of resumed getting back to our own lives or getting back used to this new normal, whatever it is. <laughs> They're still out there fighting those front lines day in and day out. Indeed. Speaking of the Roseanne Longo, Longo spokesperson and chair of the Longo's Family Charitable Foundation. And one of the great things that the Longo's Family Charitable Foundation are doing, they're matching all offers received from donors up to $150,000. And it's, I mean, it's such a needed thing, but it's great to see you, your family, the company and Longo's and the Charitable Foundation deciding to make this difference and step up and do this. Yeah, thanks. I mean, you know what? That's what we're all about. We have a, a passion for a, a food and a love of family, and that's what inspires our foundation to do what we do. We want to help build healthier and happier communities. And through this match, we just wanted to step up as leaders in our communities but inspire others to join us to support the frontline healthcare workers and, and help us provide that funding that they need to support their, their uh, mental well-being. As much as I mean, I think about you personally, Roseanne, about the Longos family and your love of family and how much it means to you. You study business at Wilfrid Laurier. You're very educated. How did this life path take you to this area, what you're giving so much back to the community while working for the company? 
Oh, that's funny you ask because, uh, you know, your life paths are, are kind of, sometimes they're different than what you anticipated, right? You go to a uh, university and get an education and think maybe you're going to become an accountant and <laughs> life takes you a whole different direction, which is which is always good. You know, our, our, um, our passion for helping our communities just stem from our grandparents uh, back in, in Sicily, Italy, when, when they were farmers there. And uh, it was our Nona that, uh, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of money. They were supporting a family of six. But when she was baking bread for the family, she would always ensure to bake extra loaves and take them to the orphanage uh, down the street. And, and that, um, that, I guess, that value of, of giving back to others and helping where you can, no matter how small, uh, translated to to our fathers, to Tommy, uh, Joe, and Gus Longo, and when they founded the business, again, starting out, they didn't have much, but they always ensured that they helped um, whoever needed it in the community, whether it was helping with a, 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 a gift basket of, of food for a family that was struggling or had a recent fire or whatever the case may be. And, and, and as the business grew, we were able to help in more impactful ways, uh, that's that's where we did it. That's what we did, and that's how we could step up and help our communities. And it's a great point, Roseanne, because it's the little things that add up to big things. Yes, exactly. It's, it's not how big or small. It's just about doing something. It always makes a difference. And, and giving back is about, we always say giving back is about time, talent, and money. So if it's time that you have, not necessarily money, you can serve and give back on, on, a, on a board or become part of a committee raising money for an organization. There's so many ways. And of course, if you want to be part of this and be involved and you want to do something for Mackenzie Health or Trillium or William Moser, you can go to their respective foundation websites, knowing that the Longos Family Charitable Foundation will match the uh, donations to help support the frontline hospital staff. We see them sometimes in break and they just look utterly exhausted. But if you're interested, mckenziehealth.ca slash foundation to get more details. Um, how much is this changed how Longos does business the last year and a half? I mean, I know it's such essential service, getting groceries, but has it changed the outlook about the importance of feeding Ontario, feeding the GTA, feeding York Region, and being safe at the same time? Yeah, you know, we've always been focused on, on our team member and guest uh, safety, you know, health and, health and safety, being in the food business. Um, but honestly, it's been a privilege to be able to uh, be considered an essential uh, business and, and feeding our communities, uh, especially during this time and providing people with food when at, at the very beginning when it was hard uh, uh, for our guests to, to have access to home delivery or, or to getting into the stores. So it's been an absolute um, privilege to be able to help our communities in that way. I love and, it. Uh, and our team members have really stepped up right from the beginning. You know, we, we implemented wearing masks in our stores before anybody else had uh, mandated it, and we were strongly encouraging everybody. Uh, we just wanted to keep keep our guests safe, our, our, our um, team members safe, and uh, be fully transparent about what, was, what we were doing in store to do that. Well, Longo's making a difference in your neighborhood and in your community with the Longo's Family Charitable Foundation. An absolute pleasure to speak to Roseanne Longo. Longo spokesperson and the chair of the Longo's Family Charitable Foundation and uh, committing $150,000 to area hospitals hit hardest by COVID-19. Roseanne, thank you so much. Thank you for the Charitable Foundation and continued great work in the community. You guys really are making a difference. I don't know how much you're told that, but we just like to extend your, our gratitude. Jim, thanks so much for, for having me on. I uh, really appreciate that, and, and I hope um, our, the community gets behind us as well, and, and we'll match those funds. Will do. All the best, Roseanne. Take care. Thanks, Jim.
If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com for the free podcast edition. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.